We Have Issues is a weekly podcast full of reviews of comics and oversharing. We use grown-up language to make very childish jokes. You can find the show at wehaveissues.net, as well as anywhere else where average to not too bad podcasts can be found. Hello, it's uh, episode 122 of We Have Issues. I'm Nick. I'm your host, such as uh, such as I am. It has been a while since the last episode, and uh, I've uh, fallen off the horse somewhat. I've uh, forgotten how to ride the bike, or at least, as I understand it, podcasting is like riding a bike. Uh, but if you haven't ridden a bike in a while, even though um, you should strictly speaking by the magic of that saying be able to just get on it and start riding it again that doesn't mean you're not scared of doing it um, especially near traffic Uh, going up curbs is one of those things I'm really difficult about and I guess part of my uh, slight anxiety about actually sitting down and recording again uh, has been about uh, getting up those curbs Sounds like a slightly strained metaphor if you haven't actually seen me try and ride a bike and get it up up a curb. I think the last time I was on a bike, I went straight over the handlebars because I can't do it. I can't lift the wheel up. It's just it's just a, a fucking mess, to be honest, listener. I'm sorry. Me on a bike is a mess. Not this. Not this podcast. This podcast is always wonderful. I'm really good at this. Um, it won't just be me. You will get to listen to Robert Headley. He's uh, doing his second part of his retrospective of Greg Rucker's work with the second volume of Whiteout, which is an excellent book. To be fair to Robert, he did send that to me a few weeks ago. It's just um, there was that whole thing about me falling off the podcasting bike. I I went through it. You heard me go on i'll try not to go on about it uh, the podcast is on twitter it's at issues pod there's a tweet i sent out on it the other day that's just going ridiculous it's got something like three thousand five hundred likes at the moment and i don't know why i think i've tapped into some sort of tumblr racism thing culture thing going on there i'm not sure it hasn't i mean none of those people have really followed the account or anything but anyway that's issues pod uh, all one word. I'm at Nick site N I X S I G H T. There is a uh, an 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 the other ten percent uh, group on Facebook as well as a We Have Issues page, um, and the podcast is uh, Patreon supported. You can support us by going to patreon.com forward slash t o t p and uh, committing to giving us a couple of quid a month, um, or just telling your friends about the podcast if you think they might like it. It's been a, a weird few weeks in comics for me, some real high points and some real low points. It's mainly the low points that have um, probably kept me from podcasting. It's just difficult, you know. We've talked about it before on the podcast, how the comics internet is always shitting the bed one way or another. And uh, it turns out as well that... Um, I might not be qualified to actually talk about comics because I don't make comics. 
Um, I think actually I'm all right because I have had something like six pages of comics published in small press things and independent books. Um, but most of the people who contribute to the podcast regularly, uh, they're just going to have to stop because um, the whole bunch of comic creators have decided that only people who actually make comics are qualified to talk about them. And it's... I mean, actually, I can I can sort of see the sense in it a little bit because quite often you see artists or writers who aren't very good, uh, like comic artists or writers who aren't very good talking about films or, or um, actual good comics as if they're qualified to talk about them. And sometimes I do look at that and think, if only there was a way um, that they could wind their necks in about this, about about the comics. or Like, they haven't written a film, for all I, as far as I know. This guy's never drawn a film because he's a comic artist. So maybe his opinion of Batman versus Superman isn't that fucking important. Um, or Lost, or, or you know, things that people actually, like other people than me and a few of my friends actually like. I, I don't know. But yeah, so I'm not sure if I'm qualified to talk about comics. I'm not sure if I ever was. And um, and it's kind of depressing. I'm going to try, though, anyway. Um, other things that seem to have happened in comics that are a bit depressing. Disney seem to have lost a bit of faith in their Marvel Tum Tum line. I was in the Disney store in London, which is very exciting, but basically sells the same stuff as the Disney stores everywhere else. Um, and they didn't have any Marvel Tumtums. And then I play the Marvel Tumtum game on my phone quite a lot, and that's being discontinued as of about a month's time. Um, it's pretty depressing. I might become more productive because of it, um, and I might spend less time on the toilet because I tend to play it on the toilet quite a lot. But still, it's kind of sad. And it's quite a big deal. Like, the Marvel characters are kind of ripe for the some some treatment really they're really like distinctive and definitive character designs and they work really well with that so if uh, Disney had managed to make a going concern of the other some some stuff uh, their other characters it seems weird that they wouldn't be able to do that with Marvel um, I might be reading too much into the game um, the game dying on its ass I don't know uh, but the reason I was in London uh, was I was at London Super Comic Con, which was lots of fun. It was a really exciting convention for me because I had been asked uh, by my friends at Orangutan Comics, um, Ian Sharman and David Wynn, to host their 10th anniversary panel. Um, it's not it's not their 10th year of doing panels. It's their 10th year of doing comics. I mean, it might be their 10th year of doing panels. That wasn't the panel was about the the comics about them them as publishers. Um, and that went really well, but it was really early on the weekend. So basically, I went and stayed with relatives and just had a really chilled out. I had no agenda. It was lovely. Everyone in Islington seems to be there to either shop or just hang out. And so they're happy. And I was feeling quite sort of relaxed for the first time in a really long time as well. So I was proper loved up. It was really nice. I didn't do much in the way of comic-y stuff. Um, I talked a lot to uh, uh, Warwick Johnson Cadwell. That was nice. And obviously to David and Ian, an awful lot. I had a lovely dinner with David. But um, I like London Super Comic Con um, a lot. And it's changed venues, and the new venue is nice, even though I don't think the most was made of it, really. Um, 
it was good. It was a good weekend. But also, that was the first thing that really disrupted the podcasts coming back. And then I've just had had trouble getting back into the swing of things. Um, I'm not going to talk about any orangutan books this week, but they uh, did recently launch the first issue of Unsworn, which is David Wynn's uh, excellent sort of swordy, sorcery, swashbucklingy um, comic that he he does weekly on the web. Uh, and uh, and it looks amazing in print. It looks really, really good. They also uh, uh, launched, I believe they launched Son of... Um, I'm going to mangle it. It's like Son of the Father of the 11th Hour or something. It's an anthology book that's really, really nice. Um, they're doing cool stuff over there. I like them. Also, other things. There's going to be an I Kill Giants movie. Um I don't have seen a bit of footage of it and it looks okay. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily a comic that lends itself well to film adaptation. Uh, it's very it's much more of an emotional story than it is a, um, a particularly visual or a, like <sighs> cinematically arresting one, I think. Um, and also I'd kind of got the impression having not seen it that a monster calls scratches a, a similar itch but I Kill Giants was one of my favourite uh, comics of the last like 20 years pretty much it's an incredibly moving comic about loss and um, and coming of age and uh, dealing with big life shit and um, if the film adaptation sends people the book's way at all it's a relatively less well known book that's going to be an awesome thing. And also Explain the X-Men is back, uh, which is exciting. Um, it's been back a few weeks, actually, maybe a couple of months. But uh, I recently caught up with it, and that's all really exciting. Listen, I I have some comics to talk about, but I'm going to let Robert talk to you about uh, Whiteout 2, Volume 2, 2, 2, now. And uh, I'll be back to talk about comics afterwards. Hello, we have issues. Robert here with part two of my read through all the Greg Rucker comics in my collection and call it a Greg Rucker retrospective. Today I'll be taking a look at Whiteout Volume 2. This is the sequel to the comic I was talking about last time. The writing is still just by Greg Rucker. The art is by Steve Lieber and I still don't know who the letterer is. This is still a black and white comic that uses the fact it's a black and white comic to really good effect allowing the all-encompassing ice and snow that happened in Antarctica to really shine through when it doesn't have to compete with any other colour besides black. The main character is still a Greg Rucker main character, a badass woman in some kind of investigative field who manages the delicate balance of being both a real, genuine person and also a badass. And that's not just Rucker. Steve Lieber manages to do a really good job conveying all the emotion necessary for somebody who often is quite conflicted. He manages to do a good job with really everyone, although that's not a lot of people. Unlike the first volume, this isn't a murder mystery. This is more, I guess, action, maybe. More chase, I guess, would be chase series. That would be the best way to describe this. In the afterword, Rucker makes a point 
that he didn't want to do another murder mystery because he didn't want to just do the same story again. And he succeeds. This one manages to be different enough to Volume 1 of Whiteout that you don't feel like you're just reading the same thing again. But it also manages to feel enough like Whiteout Volume 1 that you're not just wondering why this is Volume 2 and not a brand new story. There's not a lot to say about the writing and art that I didn't say in my review of the first volume, which, if you don't remember, basically amounts to, it was really good. Hopefully, doing this retrospective, I don't just find myself repeating those words. No promises, though. This is a series I haven't heard talked much about, so maybe it's one you haven't heard of and are wondering if you should pick it up. As with Volume 1, I think this is something that if you see in the quarter dollar bin or you go looking on Comicology or you just want to see where Greg Rocco got his start in comics, I reckon pick this up. This is the final volume in Whiteout, but it does end in a way where there could be another one. After 15 years, I don't expect there to be one, but if it was announced, I know I'd be picking it up. And that's Whiteout Volume 2. I've been Robert Headley. You can't find me on Twitter, because I'm not on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook. You'll have to take a lucky stab at which one's me. But if you're just interested in hearing more reviews from me, on Facebook I'm doing movie reviews at Jibba Jibba Youth TV. That's J-I-B-B-A space J-A-B-B-A Youth TV. And with that, Back to you in the studio. Thank you to Robert for that. I fucking love Greg Rucker. He's awesome. Steve Lieber's brilliant on those two books as well. Um, definitely worth picking up. So I have read a few comics recently, and some of them have been absolutely uh, awesome. Um, mostly off the beaten track stuff I know there are a couple of uh, uh, events going on at Marvel and DC that people seem to like Mr. Miracle, I read the first issue of that by Tom King and can't remember the artist that was kind of nice didn't really fit my idea of that character but it was a gorgeous looking and and, and really well written comic uh, but most of the stuff that really caught my imagination was from indie publishers well, I don't even know what counts anymore because it's possible for uh, uh, publishers with a much smaller footprint to uh, get a lot of books out now uh, on Comixology and places like that. But I don't know. Anyway, all of these books are available on, on Comixology and they're well worth your time, I think. So the uh, first one is from Aftershock. It's written by Donny Cates with art by Gary Brown and uh, really bold colours by, I think it's Mark Englert. I can't read my own uh, notes here. And letters by Taylor Esposito. It's called Baby Teeth. I've read the first three issues, I believe. The fourth issue came out in the last week or two. And it's really interesting. It's like um, the story of uh, a young uh, woman... She's like a, a teenager who uh, is a single mum, uh, gets pregnant by accident, uh, and um, she's still at school. She lives with her dad and her older sister, who's a lunatic. Um, 
but kind of a standout character as well. And yeah, she gets pregnant and uh, very quickly in the narrative becomes a young single mum to a blood-drinking baby son who may or may not be the Antichrist. Um, information is drip-fed in quite an interesting way in the first three issues. The thing that really it really reminds me of more than anything is Saga, uh, only except uh, rather than being from the point of view of the uh, child uh, protagonist in Saga, who doesn't really have a voice in the first few issues, this is actually narrated by... Um, by Sadie, who is the young single mum. And um, but it delivers information in roughly the same way. There's lots of that really fun technique that if you're going to use voiceover, you should really take advantage of where everything is really clearly laid out visually um, at the same time as it's being narrated. But you'll get a very different look, uh, either because the narrator doesn't know the whole story or because they're lying. You get a very different uh a story from the narration than you get from what you're seeing and sometimes they openly contradict each other which is really cool um the cast uh, as i said it's appropriately rounded out by her uh, mysterious and incredibly dangerous older sister um, and her strong and affable dad uh both of whom totally have sadie's back in this uh, we're finding out stuff about the baby quite slowly all we really know um is that he's drinking blood by the end of issue three and that there are people who think of him as the Antichrist. There are forces moving against Sadie. Um, but it's appropriate that her family is so strong and supportive around her because this there's loads of stuff that really rings true about parenting in this. And actually, that's a bit of a theme in the next a few issues, all of which seem to be uh, the, the next few comments I'm going to talk about. Sorry, most of which seem to be about uh, single mums. Actually, thinking about it, but it's uh, it really rings true. Sadie is kind of lost uh, with the whole parenting thing. The things she has trouble with, although they're exacerbated by the fact that the baby is so strange, are all really familiar. And the way her uh, father and sister try and support her in different ways um, is all really, really uh, like comforting and, and feels really good considering that the themes in the comic are quite dark. There's a strong suggestion that really bad stuff is around the corner for all of them. Um, the second book I want to talk about is Victor Laval's, uh, uh, I think I'm pronouncing that wrong, Victor Laval's Destroyer. Uh, it's from Boom Studios. It's written by Laval, uh, who, as I understand it, is a novelist, um, with art by Dietrich uh, Smith and colours by Joanna Lafrienta uh, with letters by Jim Campbell. Now, the story here is uh, that uh, there's a woman called Dr. Baker who is the last descendant of Victor Frankenstein, and a, a genius in her own right. She's an African-American woman um, who has who is a, a single mother who has lost her son and is going to do anything she can to bring him back. Within all of this, there's a, a, a high concept a sort of a government or corporate conspiracy chasing after her. She's uh, They previously supported her but she has um, uh, since parted company with them. 
And uh, thrown into all of this, uh, there's Frankenstein's monster or Frankenstein's creature who is still out there somewhere. The setting of this comic is contemporary, uh, but it starts with Frankenstein's creature um, in the middle of a snowy landscape, a snowy landscape, icy landscape, uh, which is where the original novel left him, uh, coming back to our world and doing it as a force of nature who gives not one fuck about humans or any of their shit. Uh, you get the feeling he is presented as the punishment that nature has created for the impact we're having on the earth. There are themes of um, uh, uh, violence uh, and racism against black people in this. The way uh, Dr. Baker lost her son is uh, very topical. Um there are also the environmental themes, it, but it's all uh, totally in service to the story and it's not really preached about as such. There are a few um, speeches, but the main uh, actors in the story, Dr. Baker and Frankenstein's creature, don't give a, seem to give a shit about them. They just want what they want and they're going to do anything they can to get there. Um and Dr. Baker is a really not, like a really beautifully designed and well-realized uh, character. She's very passionate. Um, she's very intelligent and she's kind of ruthless as well. Uh, the creature doesn't really have a personality as such, uh, but that in itself is quite interesting. Um, there are hints and suggestions of an incredible intelligence to him, but it's more that he's not brutish. It's just he's kind of above giving a damn about individual human beings. Um, and it's interesting. The art is incredibly crisp. Uh, Dietrich Smith's uh, line work is beautiful. Sometimes the scale in certain sequences is confusing. That I spent a lot of the first issue really unclear on how tall exactly Frankenstein's creature is. Which is very, which is very strange, but uh, so many panels are absolutely beautiful that the fact that the odd scene doesn't quite scan the way I, you know, the a way that is perfect to me, um, doesn't matter so much. It's it's beautifully uh, uh, supported by Joanna Lefenter's colours, um, which again are very crisp. It's a very clear art style. But it's interesting because it it really works in the emotionally resonant moments. Writing and art work the most in the emotionally resonant moments, even though it's sometimes less coherent in the action sequences. So it ends up working like an anti-Warren Ellis comic. Uh, it's similar to uh, Ellis in the mix of um, fascinating, cool characters and characterization. Uh, alongside like really uh, bleeding edge scientific and cultural ideas there's um, th there's uh, lots of similarity there but where Warren Ellis really nails the uh, nails the action sequences and the visual progression of 
uh, uh, where things are in the room. And I know that sounds odd because he isn't the artist, but it's something that every artist who works on a Warren Ellis script seems to end up being really good at. Um, even the ones who uh, he's, uh, you know, have clearly been given to him on work for hire work in the past. Um, objects in space and motion is something that uh, Warren Ellis as a writer seems very aware of. Um, and his writing isn't cold necessarily, but um, I think most of the love people have for the characters in um, in his work comes from a personal attachment to the work, which is pretty kick-ass, rather than him having a really great facility for these uh, uh, touching human human moments. Um, he can handle certain interactions really, really well. But this book is incredibly human, like Victor Lavelle's Destroyer is in, incredibly human um, and really resonates in those moments, even though, like I said, visually and narratively, it doesn't always handle where everyone is. When, cha- when things get chaotic, um, it's sometimes a little bit unclear where particular characters are in in particular situations and i don't think it's deliberate i mean it might be deliberate but i I don't think it is um the third book that that follows this theme of uh parenthood and loss and um single single mothers i guess is a book called and i'm going to pronounce this wrong it's called zodjaquan which is the first of a few books I'm going to talk about from a publisher called Vault, who I only found by accident on Comixology, uh, but all of the books I've read from them are exceptionally good, um, assured, uh, smart and different books. But in Zodjakan's case, it's also incredibly commercial. Like I can see it being really commercially accessible as well. Um, It's spelled Z-O-J-A-Q-U-A-N. And I've read the first two issues. It's written by Colin Kelly with, uh, yeah, sorry, written by Colin Kelly uh, and Jackson Lansing, neither of whom I'd heard of before, with art by Nathan Gooden and colours by Vittorio Stone. This is a gorgeous looking book. The writing uh, is quite spare, but you you can see that the plotting and the uh, characterization really drives a lot of what's going on but it's a real visual feast of a book Um, it follows Shannon Kind who is a grieving mother wrestling with the recent loss of a son uh, also with the voice of her departed father echoing in her head Um, but she finds herself pretty immediately we're introduced to her as she's kind of falling through panels uh, in sort of a fever dream, but she finds herself uh, unstuck in time and on a, a strange planet, a strange and very young planet, it seems. Um, in the first issue, we very quickly find, even though it's it's quite delirious and disorienting, and it takes about half the first issue to really get what's going on, uh, even though it's intriguing enough and we learn enough in these little fragments Um to, to propel us through it but we learn that she sort of ends up surviving on this planet and uh, just as she's kind of getting used to it she jumps forward again and then forward again and then forward again and there's no uh, pat- 
pattern to it really as far as we can tell it's not after a certain amount of time or anything but through that we find that these creatures that sort of these these sort of uh creatures that start out almost like slugs and then these other creatures that are fierce natural predators evolve during her time there she's to begin with jumping seemingly millions of years at a time or thousands of years and then hundreds of years and uh, over the course of these first two issues it becomes very quickly about this resourceful uh, woman realizing what's going on relatively quickly i mean a lot of time actual not just like continuity time but a lot of uh, a lot of time in her life seems to pass she's there for a few weeks i think as far as as far as i could tell um she gets the hang of things quite quick quickly but then she's she realizes that things that that she has a responsibility as a person who keeps coming back to this burgeoning civilization um things that she says in one visit have huge and sometimes um disastrous impact on this society over time and so what you get is this really beautiful layered rewarding meditation on nature and nurture and trying uh to make things work while it's like her motherhood is sort of transposed over i might be reading too much into it but it's like her motherhood is transposed over her trying to nurture this burgeoning civilization and and just seeing uh how it works out well how her influence can uh be so positive but at the same time how she'll miss stuff it has a it has an element of those time travel stories where people go backwards and keep trying to fix things and you know they manage to fix one thing but other things go wrong but it's it's much more subtle than that and it's uh, these first two issues are absolutely beautiful and it's interesting that I've never heard of these creators before because the whole thing looks effortless and assured and it's a really rich and fresh experience to read so those are the three stories about single mums um i read the uh i got myself up to speed on uh heathen which is also from vault which is uh, entirely by uh, natasha alterisi i believe i'm pronouncing that right uh, which is a sort of a, a story about adis who is exiled from her viking village for kissing a girl and she and her horse saga go on an adventure in a world that sort of straddles viking history and mythology to rescue brynhild and that seems like that's going to be her mission in the first issue but she achieves it really really quickly and then it becomes about um an expanded cast of characters all trying all kind of heading in the same direction but ending up on different uh, diversions and uh Adis is still a really interesting central protagonist but all of the other characters are really well realized as well um there's the beautiful and nuanced Freya uh the taciturn and loyal Sigurd and uh, there are, are assorted mythic wolves and female sailors by the end of the fifth issue um the art is the only touchstone i've really got for it is uh mark badger who is not necessarily an artist that people know but it's uh, this john j muth infused scratch fest it's what i reckon gaiman's sandman 
sounded like in his head before he put it into words. I'm not dissing Sandman. I love Sandman. Uh, but it becomes something uh, much bigger than the fusion of uh, uh, myth and history and stories and everything that I think he um, intended, whereas this is really pure. This is a really pure comic um, that that really sticks to it, and it's really likeable. It's an incredibly likeable comic. Also from Vault, and I read this a few weeks ago, so um, but I want to mention it because I didn't mention it then. Uh, but my notes on it are quite spare and my memory of it's a little bit creaky, is uh, Spiritus number 1, uh, which is uh, written and designed by Tim Daniel with art by Mike Kennedy. Uh, it posits a future where criminals face the transfer of their consciousness into these state-controlled hard labour machines. It's a dystopic future that we uh, we learn about um, th- through a very focused uh, scenario and that scenario is uh, it follows Kinju Dale. She's a fighter and a convict, um, and there's a an external force, um, probably a corrupting force that uh, we don't know very much about at this point. Who makes a deal with her as she's about to be transitioned for life into uh, this state-controlled hard labor machine I was mentioning before? She gets diverted into. Um, a, a completely different machine uh one of the unshackled units that basically she can she can control freely and she quickly escapes um i believe it's a criminal overlord who's who's uh hopes he's going to be able to control her once she gets out in this droid but she uh didn't end up in uh incarcerated because she follows uh leaders and she immediately forges her own path the second she's in this robot robot body. Uh, what we get almost uh, uh, straight away is a sci-fi chase story that splits equal time between her as a fugitive and the federal marshal chasing her. Um, not dissimilar to the fugitive, actually. Uh, but it's intelligent, it's challenging, and it looks like nothing else that's actually on the shelves at the moment. It's this... Uh, I don't know what the influences are on uh, Mike Kennedy, but it made me think of um, old Barry Windsor Smith, uh, specifically Life Death and Weapon X, because of the fluidity of the movement and some of the more detailed panels. But at the same time, it's this really expressionistic and unusual, uh, and it's coloured in a really unusual and bold way as well, um, a comic that has motion and flow and... uh, bodies in motion are are represented in this really fluid way but it's really loose and not very detailed it reminds me of vintage dean ormston or uh, there was a comic drawn by tony riot that i think was written by peter milligan in a 2000 ad uh, decades ago called tribal memories and this looks really similar to that um, it's really unlikely that tony riot is an influence on on this because i don't think he really did anything else that looked the same um, or really worked in comics that much as a as a penciler and and uh, and key like key artist uh, 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 on his own. But it's a gorgeous looking comic, and all of these comics are from um, they're from three publishers that like 
just are kind of on the fringes. Boom, I guess, are a bit more uh, mainstream uh, by this point. But uh, Aftershock have been doing amazing things recently. Vault have a really small stable of comics by mostly people I've not heard of. Um, but they have like a lot of these comics are female fronted a few of them have female writers uh writers of color creators of color um but first and foremost even when they have social commentary in them they don't really lecture they're just really accessible stories um i honestly believe that these are the comics we'd get in the future that liberals want that's that Whew. Managed to talk about quite a few comics in a really short amount of time. Maybe I'm maybe I'm getting better at this, or maybe I'm hung, hungry and need need to go and get something to eat. I don't know. Anyway, thank you, listener. You've been uh, incredibly patient with me as I've uh, endeavoured to get back into the swing of things. Um, you should definitely go and check out some of those books. Aftershock are bringing out some awesome stuff as well some really interesting fun high concept stuff um yeah aftershock and vault i think both of those publishers are definitely ones to watch um black mask are really good as well but black mask are kind of trying to provoke a lot of the time i think whereas um vault are just kind of doing it uh just by putting out comics with diverse characters and I believe diverse uh, creators um, yeah yeah support these people if you don't like the way comics are at the moment uh, buy stuff that's good uh, go read Unsworn by David Wynn as well that's really really good it's ever so good uh, remember we are listener supported uh, if you go to patreon.com forward slash totp you can subscribe to uh, it supports this show and two grown men which is another podcast um, uh, i and my podcast spouse james do uh, that's kind of unrelated to this there's also a podcast called um, hello newman which is uh, about uh, uh, the sitcom frasier it's not. That's just a silly joke I make. It's about the sitcom Seinfeld, which I've never watched a whole episode of, uh, but people people love apparently. Uh, and uh, if you don't want to or can't afford to uh, patronise us, please do uh, tell people about this podcast if you think it's good. Um, don't tell anyone about us if you think it's it's not good. Hate Hate traffic is not a positive thing. Anyway, anyway, I uh, will speak to you next time. Bye.